When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Connor Reed, with words to that effect. Imagine a single point, a dot on a piece of paper. Now join that point to another. You get a line. This is one-dimensional space, 1D. Not too exciting. Now make this line into a square. It has four vertices, four corners. We now have a two-dimensional shape, 2D. We have length and width. It's a little, well, two-dimensional, but it's got structure and interest. Expand it again so there's length, width and height. It now has eight vertices. We have a cube, a three-dimensional shape. Now it's got complexity and shape and a far more appealing composition. We're in our world, a three-dimensional world. So, what happens next? 1D, 2D, 3D, 4D. Four-dimensional space. We have no problem thinking about four dimensions mathematically. A 4D hypercube has 16 vertices, where a cube has six faces, like a dice. A 4D hypercube has 24 faces. The problem is imagining what that actually looks like. We live in a three-dimensional world. We can't see a fourth dimension. We simply can't imagine what a 4D world would look like. The fourth dimension, to return to the musical analogy, would be a little like if I tell you I am now playing the piano with a single finger on one hand, and this is what I'm playing. Now, I say we can't imagine a 4D world, but that doesn't mean that lots and lots of people haven't tried to, in a huge variety of ways. Mathematicians and physicists, philosophers and theologians, occultists and mystics, artists, architects, designers, authors. The fourth dimension, when you start looking for it, is everywhere. Or, to put it in terms that many have, shadows and glimpses of the fourth dimension are constantly intruding on our own third dimension. But let's think about it another way. Imagine you lived in a two-dimensional world. You were a 2D shape, a square or a circle or a triangle, perhaps. You live in a completely flat world, like a piece of paper. Looking in front of you in this world, what would you see? Well, you'd see lines and points. You would see one dimension. If you saw a square, for example, you wouldn't know it was a square. You'd just see one edge. You'd have to travel the whole way around it to confirm that it was a square. Just like we can't see someone's front and their back simultaneously. Living in this flat world, this 2D world, you can go forward or backwards, left or right, but not up or down. Imagine, however, that a three-dimensional creature arrived in your world and somehow lifted you up in a direction you've never imagined before. It lifted you up out of your world. Now, what would you see? Well, you'd see everything. You'd see your entire world. All the sides and corners and the insides of every shape. 
like we do, looking down at some shapes on a piece of paper. If you are a 2D shape and you move in a direction you cannot conceive of, a new world is revealed to you. So if you live in a 3D world, as we all do, what would happen if someone or something from a fourth dimension could lift us up, not really up, a new direction? Where would we be? What would we see? What would be revealed to us? As many of you keen-eared listeners will realise, this is not my thought experiment. It is, in fact, the most celebrated and renowned of all thought experiments regarding the fourth dimension. It is Flatland, a romance of many dimensions, a novella by the British theologian Edwin Abbott, published in 1884. It recounts the struggles of the character A Square to come to terms with the revelation of a new third dimension. It's a work in many ways that kind of defies categorization. You can read it as an educational text, and lots of teenagers first read it as part of maths class. It is in many ways a science fiction text, and can be profitably read alongside an author like H.G. Wells. But it's also satirical, a parody of social conventions in Victorian Britain. In explaining other dimensions, it's a significant piece of science communication. But as you move away from the mathematical, it's also a hugely influential work of theology. And this is where Professor Christopher White comes in. Professor White is the chair of religion at Vassar College in New York and has just published a book called Other Worlds, Spirituality and the Search for Other Dimensions, a book which uses Abbott's Flatland as a jumping off point to explore the fourth dimension, as it appears in literature, art and television and architecture and physics and a whole host of other places. The book is really, really interesting. The central premise is that in the US and in many parts of the Western world, the number of people identifying as Christian has been consistently falling for about 30 years now. Yet the number of people who describe themselves as, say, spiritual but not religious, people who still believe in God of some sort, has remained very, very high. So if people believe in spirits or angels, in God or life after death, in heaven or another world of some sort, but not in traditional religious institutions, how then are they constructing these supernatural worlds? And in many ways, as Professor White explains, they're relying on science and maths, on other dimensions, multiverses, quantum entanglement, string theory, parallel universes. There is, and has been since the time of Abbott's Flatland, a type of scientific supernatural. I mean, how do people, you know, in the absence of traditional religious texts and congregations um, and practices, how do people imagine now the, the boundaries of the world that they live in, the secular boundaries of, of the mind and the body and the self and even, and even the world? And how do they imagine those boundaries? How do they think about uh, and why do they believe in things like angels and spirits and ghosts and heaven and... And one answer I came up with in the book was I, th I think that they're turning to popular science and, and especially these kind of fantastic scientific concepts, um, fantastic scientific concepts like, well, we could talk about a number of them, but like quantum entanglement, um, right, or uh, parallel universes or higher dimensions. So my book focuses in particular on higher dimensions, the idea that there might be additional spatial dimensions to uh, physical reality. And um, I found that that idea was so powerful. I, did, I never really knew, right? And I started to look into this. The idea becomes important in 19th century physics and math, but so many people with religious questions and metaphysical interests, whether they were mathematicians or scientists or, uh, or, or writers, sci-fi writers like 
Edwin Abbott, C.S. Lewis, fantasy writers, Madame Langle. So many people started to borrow this idea. Um, and many of them talked about these ideas, these fantastic scientific ideas, as ways of sort of achieving uh, belief again, religious belief, um, or an enchanted worldview where there were ghosts. There were rooms suddenly. There was room suddenly for ghosts um, and heavenly layers. Edwin Abbott's Flatland is by far the best known example today of a single work from this time which creates this space for heavenly layers, which got people really conceptualising the fourth dimension. But there were plenty of other people exploring these ideas. One man in particular has had a huge, wide-ranging and lasting legacy. You can see his influence in everything from maths, physics and philosophy to the Avengers franchise. This is Charles Howard Hinton. This kind of wonderfully, you know, eccentric, quirky British mathematician. He was, he was more tapped in than Abbott was into the mathematics and geometry of higher dimensions. So he was a little bit more in that world. And, and then he kind of moves out of that mathematical world into the world of pop culture with the idea that there were higher dimensions. Because while most of his mathematical colleagues said things like, well, you know, higher spatial dimensions are interesting, to use within the context of our linear algebraic equations, I don't actually think that there that there is a real uh, higher dimensional space. But Hinton actually took that in a new direction and said, well, I think that there is actually um, a higher dimensional space, a real space that corresponds to this, this variable we're using in our, um, in our mathematics. And he actually developed a whole system, right, that I write about in the book of sort of re-educating the senses to, to sort of see into this higher dimensional space. As you quickly realize with the various thinkers imagining other dimensions, the central part of so many of these thought experiments is that the square or cube. A square is the protagonist in Flatland, and Hinton was fascinated by cubes. In fact, it was Hinton who coined the term by which a 4D hypercube is commonly known, a tesseract. A term many people now know from its numerous appearances in popular culture, from Madeleine Engel's much-loved novel A Wrinkle in Time to the aforementioned Avengers series. I remember the first time, years back, I heard about a tesseract. I went to the Wikipedia page where there's a 3D projection of a rotating tesseract. It's, it's so memorising, it's kind of like looking at an M.C. Escher painting or something, where lines keep meeting in the wrong places. I've put it in the show notes for this episode, so you can go and have a look. And then the other way of imagining a tesseract, and there are lots of videos online of this too, is to unfold it into 3D space. So, you know, if you want to make a cube out of paper, you get six squares in a sort of a cross shape, and you fold up the sides and you get a cube. So you can unfold a cube into six squares in 2D space. You can go from 3D to 2D. Similarly, you can unfold a tesseract into eight cubes in 3D space. The problem is we just can't really picture the original folded object. C. Howard Hinton was very attached to cubes, and he attempted to see into the fourth dimension using a set of them. I'll let Professor White explain. So, yeah, he develops this whole system. I mean, he... I think he's a he's a genius in, in a way. I mean, he's a very imaginative person. He's got a terrific memory. Um, you know, and one thing we know from thinking about higher dimensional spaces um, and dimensions in general is that if you're able to move in a higher dimensional space, you're able to see the lower dimensional space in its entirety. So the idea Hinton was working with that was that if, if you're able to actually train the self to have hi- a higher dimensional vision, you'll actually be able to see all sides of everything um, in this lower dimensional world at the same time. 
So Hinton, Hinton believed that, and Hinton developed a system of memorization. So he, he got basically what, what is like a Rubik's Cube. Um, you know, he developed the system of Rubik's Cubes. So this was a cube set that was three by three by three. So 27 cubes in all. And he stacked them up so it looked just like a Rubik's Cube. And he actually had all of the elements of these 27 cubes um, labeled. This is really hard to believe that he's able to do this. But so he labeled um, with unique names and in some cases with colors, all the faces, all six faces of all the 27 cubes, all of the edges of all the 27 cubes, all the points of all the 27 cubes. And he had all of these um, labeled with unique names. So this is a pretty astonishing uh, feat, right, of, of, of memorization. But he stacked up his blocks in this Rubik's Cube and then he memorized where all of these variables were. And then what he would do is he would take the whole stack of cubes and he would turn it over. And he would again imagine in his mind's eye, you know, where all these elements were, memorizing all of them. Um, and then he would turn the whole block of cubes over again. Anyway, the, the purpose was to achieve what we say, a higher dimensional angle of vision on this set of cubes. So again, if you're able to rise up into a fourth spatial dimension, a dimension that we apparently don't have or a direction we apparently don't have, you're able to see all sides of a thing at once, all of the outer sides, all of the inner spaces. He believed that if you train the imagination to do this, you're actually achieving a kind of higher dimensional sight. Now, it's not clear to me exactly what he achieved by this, but you know, we do have his letters and we do have his books and his articles. And we know, I know from his letters that he talked to friends about this as a life transforming insight. And he talked about the ways that that changed how he thought about uh, relationships and about the direction of his life and about things like, um, even things like social justice. Now, not everyone was quite as convinced as Hinton himself was. He has a correspondence with the American philosopher and psychologist William James, who was a professor at Harvard around the turn of the 20th century. And, you know, James was like many people who Hinton corresponded with. He's like, I cannot understand what you're doing with these cubes. You know, it's like, <laughs> there's no, you know, there's no way I can, there's no way I can sit here and, you know, memorize these uh, memorize these different cube formations. So most other people who took up these cube sets found that they weren't able to do it. Although if you Google, you know, hypercubes and Hinton, you'll see there's quite a few people who write about this stuff online. Um, even today, you know, there are groups of people who have these cubes who recreate them. You can give it a go if you like. Just get 27 blocks, name all 162 faces, 216 vertices and 324 edges, memorize every single one and start turning it around. Who knows what you'll discover. Now, Hinton's ideas might seem obscure and esoteric, and Abbott's thought experiment in Flatland is so much more accessible. But Hinton's ideas would prove to be hugely influential. His cubes and tesseracts would become building blocks for architecture, as in the case of the celebrated American architect Claude Bragdon. Bragdon, who's this architect and artist and sort of, uh, you know, theosophist in America, who I talk about in Chapter 4, and he develops a kind of an art and architecture based on um, based on cubes and hypercubes. I think he's kind of riffing on Hinton, really. So I think he's, I think he's following Hinton's lead, is, is the reason that that becomes important. And then there's art. If you think about what Hinton and others were saying about the fourth dimension, that you could see our 3D world more fully, that you could somehow simultaneously see the front and the back of an object, see things from impossible angles. Well, what do you get if you try to depict that in painting? Well, you get the work of artists like George Brack and Max Weber and Pablo Picasso. 
you guessed, to return to that shape once again, cubism. Cubists, even if they're not interested in spirituality, they're interested in breaking down, you know, the outer forms of reality and trying to understand if there's something, some sort of scaffolding that exists underneath it. I mean, how do we, how do we break down the ways that we perceive objects? Um, and you'll see, you know, you'll see some of these cubists uh, reducing, reducing things in nature to sort of, uh, to circles and squares and triangles, you know, um, for, for Max Weber and for others, the, there, there wasn't actually a kind of a spiritual interest that was also behind it. So Weber was interested in breaking down forms to the, these, these essential sort of, um, geometric platonic geometric objects, because he believed that there was something what would we say? Some sort of spiritual or absolute essence behind everything. And he was interested in finding that. Before we delve further into the fourth dimension, I wanted to take a quick break to let you know about another show in the wonderful Headstuff Podcast Network, which this show is a part of. Personality Bingo is a great interview show with a difference. Hey guys, my name is Tom Morn and I am the host of Personality Bingo, an alternative interview podcast on the Headstuff Podcast Network. The premise is simple. It's 60 minutes on the clock, 60 balls in the bingo machine and 60 corresponding questions from anything from do you believe in ghosts? Do you cry often? And have you ever had a near death experience? The guests are really wide ranging from actors, comedians, songwriters. We've had it all. If that sounds like something that would be up your street, come and check out. Personality Bingo with Tom Moore. Now, if you aren't trying to access the fourth dimension through written thought experiments or incredible feats of memorization, through design and architecture or great works of art, there is one other way you might get there. In your dreams. Think Inception, but, you know, more complicated. John W. Dunn was an Anglo-Irish engineer who, following a spell in the British military, became an early aviation pioneer. But it was his philosophy of dreaming that would make him famous. He started out his life as a soldier. He, he went and fought in the Second Boer War. And he in combat, he started to have these experiences that um, over time he wrote down. But he would have, he would have strange dreams that seemed to predict the future, um, basically. And this started in you know, this combat setting. And he, he wondered if he was going crazy. And he wasn't sure how to explain this. but. Um, he would have these really vivid dreams, and they would often be about a catastrophe. And then a couple days later, or the next day, he'd open the newspaper, and there it would be, you know, um, basically a story about a story about the catastrophe itself. So, um, so this happens, and he starts to wonder, you know, how could this be possible? You know, um, he has a number of dreams like that. He starts to keep a dream journal. He starts to think about it, and he, he starts to read Hinton. So he starts reading that, and he's, he's also reading, you know, this is a little bit later, so this is the 1910s, 1920s, so Einstein is, uh, Einstein's theory of relativity is proven correct in 1919, so Einstein becomes an international celebrity, and his ideas about relativity and about time and about space become important, so uh, Dunn is reading those, those ideas as well, and so he develops actually a whole higher dimensional theory that tries to account for how someone could glimpse another, uh, what we say, another time in their dreams. He published An Experiment with Time in 1927, and it sold extremely well. Soon, people were describing prophetic dreams as done dreams. 
And this was not simply dreaming as a spiritual experience, whether erroneously or not, John was building on the new way of looking at time and space in the wake of Einstein, in a world where mass and energy were interchangeable, where gravity could cause time to slow down, where time was not linear but relative. Maybe the world's so-called future could be the present of someone's dreams. Now, in Dunn's case, there was also a spiritual dimension, but this came much later in life. As Dunn gets older, you know, he actually becomes a little bit more forthright about having spiritual experiences that are going alongside of the dream experiences. Because in the dream book in 1927 and then later books, he really assumes the sort of posture of a, of more of a rationalist. He's, he, he was actually an aeronautical engineer, helped build some of the first um, airplanes in uh, in the UK, actually. So, um, you know, he ha- he kind of is this the, vo- the voice of reason. He says in, this, in his books, you know, I'm not an occultist and I'm not, I'm not interested in fanciful religious ideas and so on and so on. Um, but as he gets older and towards the end of his life, he, he, it's a little bit more, uh, you know, he's a little bit more transparent about saying, yeah, you know, I ha- I've also had, in addition to these dream experiences, I've had uh, what he calls intrusions, but I think we would just call them hearing voices today. Um, you know, he hears voices and he, he sees signs and he, so he has a whole very robust kind of imaginative spiritual life. Um, and, and the voices come to him and tell him that these dreams he's having are important. And so as physics developed further, as more and more people began thinking about other dimensions, whether spiritually or scientifically, the idea opened up new ways of thinking about a whole host of things. Science fiction and fantasy authors liked the idea because it opened up amazing plot possibilities, from time travel to interdimensional beings to wormholes. John W. Dunn, in fact, was a good friend of H.G. Wells, who wrote numerous stories drawing on ideas about higher dimensions, most famously the time machine. C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles wrap a religious story in a tale of another dimension, reached via an interdimensional portal in a wardrobe. Science fiction and fantasy can create whole new worlds which are nonetheless all too familiar, retaining the hierarchies and the prejudices and the injustices of our own world. But they can also challenge us and inspire us and force us to look at ourselves and our world differently. And so too can thinking more generally about other dimensions, other worlds. Then the idea uh, the idea that you know, a higher dimensional vantage point can also give you a new way of thinking about social order. That idea goes in all kinds of different places. For instance, the American W.E.B. Du Bois, who, who uses this idea in an unpublished manuscript that I talk about in the book to, to think about race um, in new ways and sort of the, the gridded out hierarchies of race in America. And so he, he develops a kind of a short story using ideas about higher dimensions. You know, how can we, you know, Hinton wanted to train people to re-educate their senses in order to have a higher dimensional sense or higher dimensional way of seeing things. And so W.B. Du Bois takes that idea and sort of, you know, uh, you know, thinks about what would it mean to have a higher dimensional vantage point? What would it mean to transcend the, uh, the social order and ways of thinking about race? Um, you know, and I think he, I think he thought that, it meant that white people could see for the first time, um, you know, rising up above the system that they had created, right? They could see for the first time how whiteness functions, right? And how race functions and how race structures society. Um, and black people as well could, could rise up above that system and, and transcend, that, transcend that system. So where are we today? Well, physics has got even weirder. 
there's string theory and the search for a quantum theory of gravity so complicated that there's plenty of space for a scientific supernatural. People continue to fall away from traditional institutional religion, yet still duck for something else, something beyond. And exploring the fourth dimension has never been more popular. Cubist paintings sell for millions, tesseracts pop up everywhere. Abbott's Flatland has had sequels and been made into several films, most recently with Martin Sheen as the voice of the square. Films and TV shows like Inception, Interstellar or Stranger Things draw heavily on ideas first laid out by Abbott, Hint, Don and so many others. Line. Square. Cube. Tesseract. That's it for another episode. Thank you so much for listening. There are links, photos, mesmerizing videos of Tesseracts, and much more on the Words to That Effect website, wttepodcast.com. You can also follow the show on Instagram and on Facebook, or I'm on Twitter at CEDREID, C-E-D-R-E-I-D. Come say hi. If you really want to help the show, you could head over to the crowdfunding Patreon page, where you can join the growing list of amazing supporters who help make this show happen. Just head to patreon.com slash WTTE or click the link on the WTTE site. I'm going to have a short mid-season break after this episode, so there won't be an episode in a fortnight, but episode number 30 will be back as normal two weeks after that. I need a bit of time to get a few interviews set up and get you some more great episodes. Special thanks to my guest this week, Christopher White. His book, Other Worlds, Spirituality and the Search for Other Dimensions, is really, really good. I would highly recommend you pick up a copy. There's so much more about all the people we talked about on this episode, and I'll link to it on the WTTE website as well. Music this week was, well, just me on the piano. So that's just about everything. I'll see you in four weeks, and if you really miss the show in the meantime, there's a whole back catalogue of episodes to catch up with. Or you could go to headstuff.org and listen to one of the other great shows on the Headstuff Podcast Network. That's it. See you very soon. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.